Welcome to Season 3 of Busting Addiction and Its Myths, sponsored by Safe House Rehab Thailand, where we offer a modern approach to recovery, breaking with tradition by introducing new technologies that help disrupt the cycle of addiction. To learn more, visit us at safehouserehab.com and click on the video, or contact us at info at safehouserehab.com and we'll tell you about our $1,000 airfare allowance and referral rewards program. My name is Bruno J, and here's why I created this podcast. Our research has shown that despite the opioid epidemic and the worldwide panic over the ravages of addiction, we didn't see that treatment centers were doing anything different to break the cycle more effectively and improve the odds of long-term success. So we have set out to do things differently and to let all those who love an addict or alcoholic know more about the advances in treatment that we represent. Here's what we're doing differently. We have designed our diagnostics and detox to isolate and treat opioid and multi-addiction, example, alcohol plus opioids plus speed, more effectively, given that these are the new challenges of addiction in the 21st century. We integrate leading-edge technology into the recovering process, thereby disrupting the disorder, speeding the recovery of brain health. Clients come to treatment with damaged brains. This is a given. We pay attention to the importance of dopamine and other ingredients vital to brain health recovery. Traditional rehabs don't provide anywhere near the tools and close guidance that clients truly need to help keep them clean and sober for life. We do it right. First, we advise our clients to go into our sober living facility to serve as a transition to normal life, and we absolutely outperform traditional rehabs when it comes to providing a structure for long-term recovery. So if you love an addict or alcoholic, and you feel like your loved one is sucking the oxygen out of your life, is stealing your money, stealing your peace of mind and your sanity, this podcast is for you. If you're feeling rage and shame and, and he or she is living rent-free in your head 24-7, this podcast is for you. I hope to have you gain a better understanding of the nature of addictive disorder and the invisible effect it has on your psyche. It's my fervent hope you also gain a little more compassion for your loved one and for yourself in spite of this cunning, baffling, and powerful disease. To paraphrase an author in this space, we struggle because we love. Hi, Bruno J. This is episode five of season three uh, with Andrew. Hi, Bruno J. Uh, we're going to interview today a young fellow by the name of Andrew, who is clean and sober a number of years. He'll tell you a little bit about his story. Uh, and Andrew, if you could start with um, wh what you're doing today, how many years you have sober, and then we'll go back to what it was like, what happened, uh, the role of your parents, and then what is life like today. So uh, why don't you get us started? All right, sounds good. Um, hey, everybody. I'm Andrew. Um, I've been sober since February 7th of uh, 2015, so a little over five years. Um, where I'm at today, my life is pretty good. I have a, a solid employment as an aquatic director. Um, at a, at a fitness facility, you know, managing the, the aquatics department, running some lessons and so on and so forth. Um, and my life's pretty good today. Things are pretty stable. Um, you know, happy, joyous, and free. So that's that's me. That's where I'm at today. So, what are you doing uh, with respect to work and so forth? 
running um, a swimming pool at a YMCA. Um, and I've been working in pools for a long time. Um, even as a teenager, I was able to hold a job as a lifeguard. Um, and since then, it's you know, just increased my education and my certifications and uh, got myself in a position where I was able to uh, head a whole department, um, which, is, which has been good. It's been good to me so far. So go back to how you got yourself started on the road to um, your uh, wake-up call and recovery. back home and she did that for me for um, 
a couple months before. She said, okay, now you got to get yourself here, you know. Uh, but that was my start for recovery, you know. That was, the, the, you know, my, my most genuine start because there were a few times in the past before that where I had some exposure to AA or a 12-step group, um, you know, and then there was another another time where I had uh, you know, some hospitalization as a result of excessive drug use and um and, and neither of those times really did it for me, but they did plant that seed. So, you know, but when I honestly came to recovery, it was when I was 24. And it was really ultimately thanks to this person who reached out to me. Because I don't know if I would have walked through the doors of a 12-step meeting, you know, without somebody reaching out that hand. So tell me, uh, Andrew, tell me, give me an example of a typical day before uh, you before you accepted help. Like... Go back a year before you bottomed out, so to speak. What was a typical day like for you? A typical day? Um, I normally wake up early afternoon. <laughs> I mean, it depends. It depends. I mean, there were, there were different points where I was um, throughout my addiction where it had been worse and better. But, uh, you know, when I was, when I was still drinking, um, you know, typically I would, I would sleep until... You know, the earliest I'd ever get up was like 10 or 11 in the morning, you know, but normally it was like 12 or 1 or sometimes even later. Um, you know, I worked part-time uh, and mostly in the evenings. I mean, there are various other part-time jobs that I had throughout that time. Um, and what I would do is I'd wake up and I would, I, would, uh, I would smoke some marijuana first thing every day, you know, without without fail. That was always the first thing I would do. Um, and then who knows what I'd get into, you know, for the next few hours, probably end up smoking some more marijuana and then I would go to work for, you know, four hours in the evening, four or five hours. Um, so when you, when you were working, were you, you were, you must've been stoned while you were working. Oh, I was, yeah. Yeah. I was almost always stoned. Um, almost, almost guaranteed. I was, I was stoned every day. Um, all throughout the day, you know, um, I was never completely, I guess, you know, completely blitzed, but I would, I, I would, I would maintain a certain buzz, you know, throughout the whole day. And, um, and then by the end of the day, you know, when I was leaving work, um, I would, I would start drinking right after work, you know, right when I get home or I'd go to the bar, you know, if it was when I was already of age, um, surprisingly for an alcoholic, I never tried to go to a bar underage. I, I guess I wanted to save that as something special, but uh, <laughs> didn't stop me from drinking, right? <laughs> you know, I just didn't drink at the bar. You know, I had some friends who would get in and be like, oh, you can get into this place. I said, yeah, I, I want to have something when I turn 21. I mean, I've already been doing this stuff for years, you know. Um, <laughs> kind of a silly thing, but um, yeah, then I would drink all night, you know, until 2, 3 in the morning or whenever whenever the booze would run out, typically, um, or I'd pass out, you know, whichever came first. There was uh, normally not a me making a decision to stop, you know. And then sometimes, you know, I would end up uh, doing other drugs, you know, um, whether it was, you know, some cocaine or um, some psychedelics, some LSD or, or psilocybin mushrooms or something like that or ecstasy, um, you know. It, it kind of just, uh, I, was, I was a pretty pretty opportunistic person so okay. you know if something showed up yeah. I would typically be open to it you know the the only thing I, I didn't hear you said you tried or used was either heroin or fentanyl is that correct 
but almost everything else. <laughs> almost everything else. Almost everything else. <laughs> almost everything else. Pretty much everything else. Yeah. I mean, I've tried, you know, opiates. You know, um, uh, you know, prescription opiates, which I, I wasn't a big fan of the downers for some other reason. You know, they just made me feel sick, and yeah. I didn't want to feel sick. Yeah. You know, I wanted to. I wanted to be zonked out of my mind. I wanted to be somewhere else. You know. Uh, okay. Um, tell me about the relationship you had with your mom before. Uh, you woke up and after after you woke up because it's really important our our audience is really meant for the loved ones of alcoholics and yeah. addicts and and uh, you know how to how to go about healing that relationship going forward or at least having a healthy relationship with um, a loved one who's an addict um, and, and doing sort of the right alanonic uh, sorts of things so can you can you cover that territory for us please like your mom had her own turning point almost her own sort of wake-up call that as you mentioned the realization that there was nothing really that she could do to get you to stop but she could still love you and take care of you um, while all that was happening 
you mentioned enabling. Um, looking back now, it sounds like there was a substantial amount of it, but were there times when she came to realize that she wasn't really helping you? got clean and sober, uh, what now, almost six years ago, is that right? Uh, about five, five years ago, okay. or so. A little bit more than five years ago. Um, how did your relationship with your mother change at that point? You know, um, I think there was still a lot of damage that was done that was never addressed. Um, I, I, of course, did my part to make amends. stress in her life. 
Um, and she had a pretty good life, especially after I got sober. I mean, she didn't have that much to worry about anymore, but, you know, I think she just kept holding on to that stuff. And, and uh, you know, I mean, because it's traumatic, and I, and I have to remember that, that, you know, what, what I put my mother through, a therapist might call trauma, you know? Yeah. Were there, were there any trust issues moving forward after you sobered up? Yeah, I mean, there were some, but uh, but she saw how much progress I was making, and she definitely opened up, you know. I mean, I, I remember the day I got keys to my mom's house, my mom and stepdad's house, and um, that was maybe more surprising because my stepdad was open to it. But, um, but I mean, mind you, when I, my 21st birthday was, was on Easter, and I was at their house, and I got completely hammered by, you know, 3 in the afternoon, and I was passed out at home by 5 p.m., and I made a complete fool of myself in front of my whole stepdad family, my family, you know, it was one of the last Easter's that my grandpa was coherent, and I just completely, you know, got annihilated, and, uh, and I had lost trust with my stepdad, especially at that point. I mean, he said, you know, he said, hey, Andrew can't drink at my house anymore ever again, you know, and I, was, and I had just turned 21, you know. Um, so, the, so I just remember the day that I got keys to their house it was like mind blowing that, that one, he would allow me those and, and two, that my mom actually trusted me. I mean, you know, I, my mom was such a big hearted person that I think she always, always knew deep down inside that I loved her and that I didn't mean, that I didn't mean to cause harm. You know, and I, and I didn't. I mean, I don't think I ever really meant to cause harm. I was just a sick person. And I think to some level she knew that, whether she was, uh, you know, could I would say it or not, I think she, she, she understood um, that part. So when I sobered up and she saw me doing good, you know, over the span of a few months and then, you know, ultimately a few years before she passed, you know, that we definitely regained trust. She trusted me. Um, Completely. I mean, she didn't necessarily trust me to cut the grass on exactly the day that she wanted me to cut it, but she knew it would get done. (laughs) (laughs) Versus before, where it wouldn't get done, you know. Um, But in general, yeah, she would trust me. You know, she would trust me a lot. And um, you know, the last couple of years, she was, you know, she was sick with cancer, pancreatic cancer, and um, you know, she would she would call me and give her a ride. She would. you know, whatever it was, take her to the hospital, and, and she knew she could trust me to do those things, um, and I was happy to do them. You know, I was. Uh, I wish I wish I had more time. You know, to yeah. do more things with her. Right. Um, well. You know. So, Andrew, what what uh, what do you do today to stay clean and sober and and grow as a human being? Today, um, well, I still participate in twelve step groups. Um, I sometimes talk to my sponsor, <laughs> not, not probably as often as I should. Um, but another thing that I that I've really gotten into um, is I, I practice with a Buddhist community, um, that's an international Buddhist community, and I've gotten really involved in that community. And I do I do a lot of uh, I do I try to do what what we would call the twelve step programs uh, service work. You know, in that community, I help organize um, local events. I, um, I help facilitate um, things with our, with our local group in, in, in the city I live in. Um, and, I, and I use a lot. I use the method 
methods, you know, the meditations, you know, I follow the suggestions of, of my teacher, um, the teacher of the, the, the organization. And, um, you know, and that's been really helpful for me, uh, especially in the last few years, you know, working with the, with, with meditations, different meditations, and, um, trying to maintain a certain view about life, you know, seeing, seeing everybody as, as, as having this, what we call Buddha nature, you know, seeing everybody as, as, um, as having really great qualities, you know, and trying to, trying to hold that view and, and trying to act like a Buddha until I become one, as we say in my, in that group. I hear you. Um, what about the 12 steps specifically, how they have helped you, if so, change internally? Maybe you've heard this before. Um, you know, is that is that you you do your work on the steps and then you let the steps do their work on you. Right. Um, so it's it's kind of like a cup of tea, right? You know, um, you put the tea bag in. If you pull it out right away, you're you're just going to have hot water. If you leave it in too long, especially you know, say like with green tea, you leave it in too long, it gets bitter. You know. Um, but what happens is that something changes, right? You go from this clear water now to this, you know, green water that's flavorful. So um, what I found is that through working the steps, the 12 steps, um, you know, it's changed something inside of me, just like the water and tea, right? Um, where it's now instilled some working parts of my of my life, you know, these these principles that become working parts of my life, the so principles that come from there you go. the steps. You know, yeah. the honesty, um, you know, just, just taking responsibility for my actions, you know, being able to uh, notice when I've done wrong or caused harm and then and then take responsibility for that and, and face up to it. You know, if I hurt somebody, go up to that person and, and apologize, you know. Um, and those are simple things that, you know, I couldn't do before. Right. You know, being honest was not always easy, you know. Yeah. But I was lying by omission, you know, right. or something like this. You know, it's just there's a lot of things that that, uh, and I and I, you know, I, I have an interesting um, view about these things today because uh, you know because lately I've pretty heavily influenced from uh, my Buddhist practice, you know, that that I've developed these habits. You know, as, as an alcoholic, I developed all of these different habits, and maybe even this was happening before alcoholism, right? Where you know, I had these instincts, just like everybody else, you know, instincts to to be financially secure, emotionally secure, you know, sexually secure, whatever it was, I have these natural human instincts. But I eventually developed these habits um, that were based from those instincts, but to an extreme, you know, to, right. to, try, to, fill those, right. to try to fill those holes. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're running up against our clock now, but I, I want to ask you, uh, what, what advice would you give a parent or a loved one of an alcoholic or addict who is still using? What, what sort of mindset should they adopt?
Right. So to have a little bit of distance, um, understanding that, hey, you know, no matter what I do, they may, they may never get better. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I can still love this person okay. and I can set a, a healthy boundary for me. Okay. I can take care of me. Right. And I think that's my biggest advice is for people to like, you know, as much as we love somebody, we have to take care of ourselves when right. we're dealing with people Perfect. with addiction, you know, Perfect. because it can be taxing to try to fix somebody. It can be taxing, you know, and, and it can sacrifice our own sanity. So, yep. um, Perfect. I think this is really important. Well, we're going to have to leave it here, Andrew. I will call you back later to wrap up, and I uh, can't thank you enough for your time, and thanks right. for staying up. Right. Thanks for staying up, Andrew. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Bye. So what did we learn from Andrew today? As he mentioned, number one, as he mentioned, it's rare that an addict or an alcoholic becomes addicted to only one substance these days. It's called polyaddiction, and that's the norm. Andrew pretty much said that he tried everything. He used everything except for uh, heroin, fentanyl, and uh, smoking crack. So he says he did everything else, pretty much. Number two, mother is the great enabler. She tries to help him stop while at the same time, same time allows him to, re to live virtually rent-free in her second home. So love overcomes common sense, if you will. And she's the great enabler. She loves her son. But at the same time, she is um, doing everything she can to get, him, uh, to get him to stop. Three, Andrew hated the way he felt and wanted to stop, but he didn't know how. He came to realize that he could not quit on his own and needed to reach out and beg for help. And finally, number five, connecting to other young recovering people got him into his first 12-step meeting where he surrendered his old ways of thinking and he's been clean and sober ever since. Thank you for tuning in today. It's my fervent hope we've given you new insight and new hope that will lighten your burden. For our hearts go out to all who suffer the effects of addictive disorder. Please give us your feedback at info at safehouserehab.com. By all means, ask us any question you like, and we'll answer on air if you will. And if you want to leave us your first name and city, we'll recognize you too, of course. This podcast is sponsored by safehouserehab.com where we take a modern approach to recovery, something all families of those who suffer deserve. Tune in next week for more.